Welcome to the HF21 series on the CHFS perspective and case-based approach on the 2021 CHFS CCS heart failure guidelines. In this episode, we will focus on the initiation of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction and type 2 diabetes, and we will review practical tips and key questions to a patient case. An on-demand version of the 30-minute episode presented on the same topic is available right now at www.imedicus.ca slash HF21. To learn more about the Canadian Heart Failure Society and find out more about upcoming programs and initiatives, please visit www.heartfailure.ca. We hope you enjoy this episode. So my name is Dr. Grace Chua, and I'm a cardiologist at McKenzie Health in Richmond Hill, Ontario. And today I'll be walking you through a case. So our case is a patient called Arthur. He is a 70-year-old male with type 2 diabetes, previous inferior MI, with hypertension, New York Heart Association class 2 symptoms, with some limitations to normal activity. His LV ejection fraction on echo is 38% and he has an ischemic cardiomyopathy with no previous history of hospitalizations. His current medications include an ACE inhibitor, perindopril, eight milligrams daily, a beta blocker, bisoprolol, 10 milligrams daily, a MRA spironolactone, 12.5 milligrams daily, furosemide, 40 milligrams daily, a torvastatin, enterocoded aspirin, 81 milligrams daily, metformin, one gram BID, Glybride, five milligrams BID. His EGFR is 38 mils per minute per 1.73 meters per second. Um, his creatinine, 131, potassium, 5.2, NT-proBNP, 940 picograms per mil, heart rate, 65 beats per minute in sinus rhythm, blood pressure, 132 over 88, and his hemoglobin A1C is 7.3%. So what does the current CHFS CCS guidelines say about management of this patients with HFREF and diabetes? The guidelines say that any patient with HFREF and class two to four symptoms should be on foundational therapy, that is beta blocker, MRA, sacubitol valsartan, and SGLT2 inhibitors. We should aim to put our patients on all four foundational therapy concurrently and to maximize tolerated doses within three to six months. And why is this important? Because we know that being on all four significantly improves overall and event-free survival across all age groups. A recent cross-trial analysis shows that a 55-year-old patient on all four foundational therapies compared to ACE inhibitor or ARB and beta blocker alone improves event-free survival by 8.3 years and overall survival by 6.3 years. And these agents, including sacubitol, valsartan, and SGLT2 inhibitors, start to work very early with a statistical significant difference seen at 30 days or less after initiation. The prognosis of HFREF is poor, we know that, with a 50% five-year survival. And if your patient gets hospitalized for heart failure, this signals even poorer prognosis with a 30-day mortality rate post-hospitalization of 16%, 
and a 30-day readmission rate as high as 25%, as well as decreasing survival with each hospitalization, such that after the first hospitalization, your survival decreases to 2.4 years, and by the fourth hospitalization, down to 0.6 years. So we need to act with urgency, and anything we can do to prevent admission or admission for heart failure is key. And starting these agents early helps to do that and to improve your patient's prognosis. The data on SGLT2 inhibitors and HFREF is seen in sister trials of DAPA-HF with dapagliflozin 10 milligrams daily and EMPA reduced with empagliflozin 10 milligrams daily. These agents were used on top of very good triple therapy for heart failure and showed a statistically significant reduction in the primary endpoints of cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure with very similar and robust hazard ratios of 0.74 and 0.75 respectively. So as mentioned, the curves separate early with a statistical significance seen within 12 to 28 days of initiation. And these trials show that this works regardless of diabetes status, both in diabetics and in non-diabetics. So we can now truly say that SGLT2 inhibitors are not just diabetic drugs, but should be considered as heart failure medications. Not only this, there are renal benefits seen with SGLT2 inhibitors, both in the Credence trials in diabetics with CKD and albuminuria and with, uh, with canagliflozin and in the DAPA-CKD trial in both non-diabetics and diabetics with CKD and albuminuria with dapagliflozin. These trials show statistically significant reduction in the renal-specific composite outcomes such as end-stage kidney disease, doubling of serum creatinine or renal death with a hazard ratio of 0.66 in Credence and 0.56 in DAPA-CKD. SGLT2 inhibitors have also been shown to improve quality of life in HFREF trials um, through statistically significant improvement in the KCCQ scores. Sacubitril volstartan has also been shown to be superior to ACE or ARBs alone at lowering the risk of renal dysfunction as seen in a meta-analysis that included the large Paradigm HF and Paragon HF trials. So let's look at some practical tips now when initiating SGLT2 inhibitors. And most of this is nicely summarized in a schematic from the CHFS, which can be downloaded at heartfailure.ca. So let's look at uh, glucose management. Number one, don't use them in type one diabetics due to an increased risk of DKA. Use them in diabetics or non-diabetics with HFREF or CKD with microalbuminuria. With regards to risk of hypoglycemia and DKA, this does not occur in non-diabetics, so you don't have to worry about that in non-diabetics. In diabetics, hypoglycemia is rare without concomitant use of a sulfonylurea or insulin. If your patient is on an SU, I usually try and eliminate it, particularly if hemoglobin A1C is less than 7.5%. I usually reduce the SU dose by 50% and insulin dose by 20%. Note that the effectiveness of SGLT2 inhibitors at lowering glucose is based on your patient's EGFR. If your patient's EGFR is less than 45, the effect of glucose lowering is minimal and you may not have to worry about adjusting anything. However, we should stress that cardiorenal benefits persist regardless of the EGFR um, and is present down to 20 mils 
uh, per minute per 1.73 meters squared uh, as seen in the Emperor uh, reduced trial. The risk of DKA is low in well-monitored patients in the heart failure trials, 0.1% or less. And although it may have serious consequences, unless the risk of DKA is high, SGLT2 inhibitors should not be withheld in half-ref therapy due to its large clinical benefits. Now, strategies to mitigate DKA by holding SGLT2 inhibitors when fasting or with acute illness and volume loss, such as seen in the sidemen's criteria, as well as staying well hydrated when ill and seeking medical attention promptly when there are symptoms of DKA, even if the glucose is not extremely high, uh, as seen with SGLT2 inhibitors can cause a euglycemic DKA. Patients should also refrain from a high ketone or very low carb diet and also from when withholding their basal insulin. In diabetics, consideration should be made at replacing an agent with no documented cardiorenal benefits, such as an SU or a DPP4 inhibitor, with an SGLT2 inhibitor for its cardiorenal benefit and not only for its glucose lowering effect. So let's look at renal function and volume status. So number one tip, it's all right to start an SGLT2 inhibitor down to an EGFR of 20. The previous much higher EGFR labeling pertains to glucose reduction and not cardiorenal protection. Uh, in the heart failure and CKD SGLT2 trials, safety and efficacy was seen in patients regardless of the EGFR. There was no interaction or heterogeneity based on renal function. So you will note an initial dip of EGFR in the first two to four weeks of initiation, up to 15 to 20% due to the afferent arterial constriction in the glomerulus. So unless there is a high risk for dehydration or acute renal failure, such as in patients on concomitant use of RAS inhibition, RNAs diuretics, patients with near end-stage kidney disease or cardiorenal syndrome, I don't usually check renal function until the 12-week mark. Seeing the early drop in EGFR should not prompt automatic discontinuation of SGLT2 inhibitors. Greater than 20% initial dip in EGFR should prompt searching for other causes such as dehydrations, nephrotoxins, hypotension, and backing off of diuretic and anti-hypertensive dosages if there is dehydration or hypotension. In these cases, close monitoring is advised. The number three tip is there's currently not enough data on SGLT2 inhibitors in patients on dialysis or with a renal transplant. Number four, watch out for hypovolemia and hypotension in more elderly and frail patients, as well as patients on concomitant use of RAS inhibitors, sacubrolosartan, or diuretics. These patients may also require closer monitoring. I would not start an SGLT2 inhibitor on dehydrated hypotensive patients as this will lead to renal failure. In euvolemic patients, there is optional dose reduction of 30 to 50% of your diuretic dose, particularly if volume depletion occurs. And regarding genital mycotic infections or GMIs, number one, do not start SGLT2 in patients with an active GMI. Wait until the episode resolves and then start. Number two, finding my practice counseling is the key and will prevent heartache and ensure success. So practical advice such as rinse and wipe after each urination, don't wear tight pants and change your underwear daily is what I give to my patients. Number three, 
can you can treat GMIs with a pill and pocket approach such as fluconazole, and it does not necessarily require discontinuation of therapy. But number four, don't forget to rechallenge your patients who discontinue medication after a GMI by explaining the large cardiovascular and renal benefits that they are missing by not being on an SGLT2 inhibitor. So coming back to our patient, Arthur, with symptomatic HEF-REF, we need to, number one, add an SGLT2 inhibitor such as dapagliflozin or empagliflozin to assist with the treatment of heart failure and provide cardiorenal protection. I would cut down on his dose of glyburide by 50% or eliminate it altogether if possible. Number two, his ACE inhibitor, perindopril, should be switched to secubital volsartan. And remember the minimum 36-hour washout period required when switching from an ACE to an ARNI, but not required from an, uh, an ARNI, from an ARB to an ARNI. Number three, I would not start both together at, at the same time as both can have potential diuretic effects and increase the risk of volume depletion and acute renal failure. Both require a check of potassium and creatinine for ARNI one week post initiation or changes in dosages, and with an SGLT2 inhibitor, usually two to three months after initiation, unless the risk of acute renal failure or hypovolemia is high, in which case I would check the volume status, electrolytes, and creatinine sooner. So um, number four, the Fabulous four should be started as early as possible and titrated to maximal tolerated dose, dosages after all four foundational therapies are on board. So I hope that in this podcast, I have been able to give you a good review of the use of SGLT2 inhibitors and foundational therapy and HFRAF in both diabetics and non-diabetics, as well as give you useful practical tips regarding initiation of SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure patients. Thank you very much for listening. And this program was made possible through educational grants from Novartis and BI Lilly Alliance.